Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're hearing from Dan Eberhardt. Dan is an outstanding entrepreneur who's deliberately chosen the road less traveled. To give you an example, he has a philosophy that if you're going to do something, don't just be incrementally better. Instead, if you're committing yourself to building a business, you might as well tackle big problems. Dan's first company was a decentralized wind energy company, which he and his partner ended up selling when they had about 70 million in assets. He now leads Coho, his third startup, which focuses on democratizing the best financial products for Canadians. He's raised 60 million, has over 100 employees, and is on a remarkable growth trajectory. What both of these companies have in common is that they're both long shots and they're facing incredible odds. So I had to have Dan on to learn about how he was able to finance these companies. One major takeaway is that Dan's approach and what he advises on is delivering your pitch with intentionality. So given the size of your project or how long of a shot, it really doesn't matter. The advice Dan shares is valuable for anyone building a company or engaging investors. So enjoy this one and stay well. On the line, I have Daniel Eberhardt, who's the founder and CEO of a company called Coho, which is a very interesting fintech startup, as well as you're uh, now a second time founder, and you've got some very interesting words when it comes to financing. So Daniel, I wanted to thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here, Corey. I came across, well, Susanna came across your profile and the work you've done. You're an interesting entrepreneur. So I think it would be a good start to have you share some of your background. Give us that elevator pitch of yourself and then we can build from there. How's that sound? Yeah, that'd be great. So first company at a university, uh, I went to school in Calgary, Alberta, and saw all my friends getting into the energy and oil and gas sector. And, you know, it frankly just never resonated with me, never engaged with me for whatever reason. I was lucky enough to have the the support of the self-esteem to say, this isn't where I want to go and I'm not going to kind of follow maybe that path. So cut pretty hard the other way and started a wind energy company with a friend. And that really started as sort of a, what was our vision, which was called decentralized wind energy. So, you know, small micro wind turbines all over the province. And we were doing pretty well there, kind of plugging along through that and ended up getting into industrial scale wind farm development, ended up building about 60 to $70 million worth of wind farms and, and ultimately sold that to a company out of Ontario called Algonquin Power. So it's sort of a mid-cap energy company, you know, worked hard, but certainly got lucky on a lot of things in terms of timing and, and we're kind of in the right place, right time. After that, I actually started sort of an e-commerce logistics company in the group buying heyday. I actually probably learned as much from this business, even though we only ran it for a year in the sense that we watched and we had like a great start to the business and, and we're ultimately doing quite well out of the gate. And we were basically a logistics company when, when the group buying heyday was peaking. And what we found was that the stuff that was selling online 
was the stuff where you could massively inflate the MSRP or the, the suggested retail price and then mark it down to look like it was being hugely discounted. But the ground truth of that ended up being the stuff that was like, frankly, the cheapest manufactured and the lowest quality ended up selling the most. And so, you know, we just really got this sense that the stuff that we were doing was going to end up in a landfill in a matter of weeks and didn't feel great. So even though that business was working, it really wasn't interesting. And so I ended up kind of realizing that that was going to be a super important part of my entrepreneurial DNA, hopefully. And then the third real company is called Coho. So we're now five years in, really on a mission to democratize access to the best financial products in Canada. And there's a bunch that goes into that, but uh, we're now about 100 employees. We've raised a little over $60 million and uh, are growing quite quickly. And certainly the biggest company I've ever run and, and kind of continuing to learn more every day, especially in this environment. So no that's kidding. my quick potted business bio. Well, it's a hell of a bio. And what I want to do, I think a really good place for us to go there is in our pre-conversation before we started recording, you said that you look at entrepreneurship and the things you're doing with a focus on if you're going to do something, do it big because it's an incredibly hard journey no matter what for any kind of business you're going to build. So you might as well apply it to something that is not just an incremental improvement. I want to hear your philosophy on that and how you're applying it to Coho, which you're in essence taking on the banking industry. And before that, you were in the David Goliath scenario of energy. And then we can tie that over to finance because I think where a disconnect for entrepreneurs may be is how do you communicate to investors your massive idea when you've got perhaps a small track record? So. Um, that's uh, perhaps a mouthful, but can you take <laughs> us down the path and, and sure. the philosophy and, and a bit about Coho and, and how you are taking on the banking industry? Yeah, so there's some things in the Canadian banking industry that really bug me. And maybe just starting from my own personal story, I grew up to a single mother who we we're very fortunate to grow up in a wealthy country like Canada and ultimately have a, a middle class lifestyle. But my mom had to work really menial jobs to deliver us that lifestyle which is fine. And, and that's great. And, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to her for doing that. And then after I sold the first company or we sold the first company, I should say, you know, you get a little more financially sophisticated and you look at your mom's investment portfolio and you kind of realize that 30 to 40% of her retirement is going to be corroded by fees that ultimately make her more likely to underperform and have a worse performance and have, you know, 30 to 40% less capital when she retires. And and so that kind of really put me on the path initially as a really powerful moment to suggest that like that utility doesn't make sense for how impactful it is to her retirement. And the second experience that was really kind of profound for me was as I was thinking about starting this company, because you start digging in and you realize like credit card departments are returning 50% on equity and that's a zero sum game. And 46% of Canadians have less than $1,000 in the bank and, and all these kind of knock on effects. The second personal component was I... I asked 10 of my friends for their bank statements. My brother had paid $85 in bank fees in three months and he didn't know it. And he works in film sets and stuff like that. So, you know, he's a pretty, uh, it's just a, another kind of average income in, in Canada. And so those are kind of the really personal examples that are extrapolated across the country. And when you think about if you hold a savings account, and I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but it, it's relevant, is if you think about a savings account, you know, if you have less than $5,000, in that account here, the banks are, and this was in the, on the old interest rate environment, who knows today, but they're going to pay 0.3% on those deposits and then turn around and lend it out for 
seven times that. And that's if you have $5,000. For most people, they're getting kind of 0.05, 0.01. So it's one thing to say that we're going to have an oligopoly, and there's certainly pros to having an oligopoly where we can manage systemic risk well. It's another thing to say that that oligopoly is going to disproportionately impact those in Canada with the least. So that's kind of like the true north of Coho, is how do we level that a little bit or equalize it? So that's what we're trying to do. So that was the original mission. I didn't know Coho was going to be the manifestation of it until we kind of did the work and thought about the best way to, to address this. And, and so that's what we do. So today we just have a spending account, does everything a traditional bank account does. We don't charge fees. We automate how people save and they ultimately end up saving kind of 10x what they would with an otherwise in a traditional kind of product and, and saving infrastructure. And then we give you real-time cash back on everything and, and ultimately have just kind of built a much more aligned consumer experience. And now we're getting into sort of credit and getting people paid early and integrating a higher savings account, which is going to pay, again, a multiple of what the banks pay and stuff. So that's kind of a quick synopsis of my approach to Coho and, and what we do. Good on you. And, and I was thinking to myself as you were explaining that, that I appreciate the sophistication in which you explained the business model there and, and how that came through. How did you apply that, especially now that you've raised $60 million to build this company? How did you apply the pitch when you were raising that money in the various rounds that you've raised that? Yeah, it's an important question. And I think like the first sort order there is, this is assuming that you need to raise capital. And if you need to raise capital, then especially for this, which is going to be very capital intensive to build, you really have to do think of like investors as not just stakeholders, but your customers. Because if you don't go out and get the information that's going to show investors that you're A, see the business the same way they do, and B, are competent enough to de-risk it, you're not going to get your business off the ground. And so, you know, we did something a little bit unique early. And there's a blog post that's on the internet that still kind of bumps around from time to time about how we used 1K to raise 1 million. And we knew that, and this was in the earliest days when we were raising twenty dollars and $50,000 angel checks for our first round of a million dollars. We knew that the cost of acquisition was going to be a major driver of this. You know, our cost structure is better than the banks for sure, but how are we actually going to get eyeballs in a way that's affordable enough to scale an organization? So we went and kind of methodically de-risked, like step-by-step de-risked our cost of acquisition objectively before we had a product. And then what we did was we took that data set and we built a calculator, which showed with statistical significance that the data was suggesting that we were going to get a customer for $9. But we actually went through this methodology to say, we think we're going to get a customer for $9, but we're 95% sure we're going to get one for less than 15. And you can do that using just statistics and basically a bell curve distribution. And so that showed investors a couple of things. One, that we were maybe a little bit unique in how we approached the problem, that we understood the risks of the business in the same way that investors did, and that we were probably going to be pretty competent at solving that more symbolically that we would solve future problems. So that was a very specific thing we did in our earliest days, to your point of when you don't really have a track record, you have to prove to investors that you're going to be an outlier. Because if you get an average outcome as an entrepreneur, that means you fail, right? 80% of these businesses go under. So your definition or the expectations from the beginning has to be that you'll be the one who defies the odds. And so that was a fairly symbolic gesture in terms of something that gave an anchor point to early investors to suggest that we might have a better outcome than others. Because the final thing is, especially in those early days, you as an investor have four to six data points to think about it. It's like, do I like the team? Do I like the market? You know, as you get to a series B and or later stage company, there's hundreds of data points to look at. 
it becomes much less about the narrative and the founder. But in those early days, that, that's all it is. So that was like an anchoring point for investors to say that these guys might do okay. You just touched on something there. The data points, which is an analytical aspect, and then the narrative, which becomes more of a, a subjective sure. feel-good aspect. And I will argue until I'm blue in the face that emotion will trump logic. And you need to start by conveying, and I would say in any stage of the finance, you need to start by conveying the emotion of the opportunity and then come and back it up with that logic. Are you on the same path with that? And, and if so, how? And if not, why? It's a good question. So I certainly think it's enormously important. I think in the early days, emotion trumps logic. I think as you go further, bigger and bigger as a company, I think that there's more arguments or a more object, objective approach that's defensible. But that's all to say that that is within a certain boundary. So there's a couple of things that really matter. And one is like investors, the market, people are emotional creatures, and that's never going away. And that's a huge part of people's decision making infrastructure. And that might just be something as simple as I really like this person, it might be if they succeed, great, if they don't, at least my money's well spent. It's enormously important that people have something emotional to anchor to there's actually a really practical reason for that too, which is that there's a couple of them. One is like when things get tough, having an emotional connection to the work, to the people actually makes you a much more resilient company. And the other component of that is if you think about where the best people gravitate and you have like a two by two of income and let's call it purpose, the emotional companies who are building great businesses is where the best people in the world gravitate to. It's where you have a competitive advantage over talent. Like no personal injury lawyer is going to be able to outcompete us for talent, right? And so that's kind of like an enormous part of the, of the DNA, I would say. Right. Yeah. I've heard, uh, in fact, one of, uh, I think it was last week's interview with a gentleman named Kyle Dunn, who's a CEO of Mailer Capital. And the work he does is help fund managers for large investment funds raise capital for their funds. And along that vein, you know, there's an uber logical person that's going to write a check into a fund and a large check, a multi-million dollar check, but they come at it again with that emotion. And that emotion is what attracts people. It attracts the human element. And then they come with the logic after. But what he was saying there is that in these, especially right now in these trying times, the funds that lead with emotion are able to attract the kind of investor and the kind of relationship that's willing to stick in there longer. And they don't call for redemptions right away. It gives them more longevity, more almost liberty to ride through tough times. And also it gives them the ability to get the meetings in the first place. They're not just coming and saying, we logically do this. It's a point that I really like to emphasize with anybody I'm speaking to. And I, I do appreciate hearing your perspectives on it. Yeah. And, and that makes perfect sense, right? the inputs and outputs of like a purely logical approach. And as you get into, you know, private equity, they have very clear LP structures of what they're able to invest in and what under what parameters. So there is some component of logic, but that cuts just as easily the other way where non-performance that, that money gets yanked because you don't have the emotional bond or, or the longevity or the overarching narrative, which says, yeah, it might be bumpy right now, but let's stick this thing out because we still have conviction on, on the people or the thesis or what have you. So you need both. I'm 100% aligned with you. Hmm. Daniel, I want to bring us back to your discussion about going big. And if you're going to do something hard, you might as well make it big. What compelled you at a young age to go into wind energy? And how did that turn into 
a 60 or $70 million business. How did you raise the money for that? And what was that like? Yeah. So I think there's a couple things that, that go into that. One is like, I'm very fortunate to have a, a mom who probably gave me more self-esteem than I deserve to have. Nice. Um, and so looking back, it was, it worked out and it was of a you know, pretty material scale. But, you know, at the time we didn't start at that scale, right? We just started with the notion of like, I think this makes sense. And we're fortunate enough to go have the opportunity to do it. But the original model was I used to host these town halls. And I should say that my friend was a CEO and I was a VP. And I used to host these town halls with 50 or 60, 70 year old farmers when I was 22 or 23. And we'd invite everybody out and call them out. And we had what are called rural maps and we could show them what their wind speed was and then what the returns on their wind farm would look like if we were able to put one on there. And we would like put out milk and cookies and I would pitch these farmers on buying a, a wind turbine from us. And, you know, I'm sure it was terrible. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it was so bad, but we, we sold a couple of them. And then there was this opportunity to get into the industrial scale wind farm development. And this is actually a really kind of important takeaway that I took from this as well is at the time there was this very large program, which was for, you know, multi hundred million dollar wind farms. And then there was this smaller program for $25 million wind farms. And we didn't have the money to compete in either. And it was just two of us. And you had to have three requirements. You had to have land, you had to have the engineering work done, and you had to have a $25,000 check for each application. And we had none of those things. And so the way that we kind of hacked the land is we started converting these town hall meetings into hey, can we also lease your land for three weeks while we're in this application process and we'll pay you 50 bucks. And if you win, then we get to build a wind farm here. And if we don't, you get 50 bucks and you're good. And that allowed us to have a unique land proposal for each submission. And then if that land won, then it was like a nice revenue stream for the farmers. So we had some good conversion there. Then we had to get engineering done. And for that, we went to a bunch of wind turbine manufacturers and said, look, we think we have a unique beat on these $25 million wind farms that, that we can build. We think nobody else is paying attention to this and we think we can win some. And so we said, do the engineering for us for free and we guarantee that we'll use your turbines if we win. And so that's how we solved the engineering. And then the third part of it was we needed debt capital for each application and you could put in as many applications as you wanted. You needed a $25,000 check per application. And so we raised $100,000 in friends, family, scrappy love money where you're getting, you know, five and $10,000 checks. And then we found a private investor that let us borrow $400,000 in a trust that we couldn't access unless that application won. And so what that allowed us to do is, you know, I think they received 30 applications for three wind farms that year and 25 of them came from us. So, <laughs> so, you know, we ended up winning two and ultimately got extended after to two and a half applications. And so like, yeah, we did some creative things well there. We did some things that maybe somebody who'd been in the industry a long time wouldn't have thought about because we just totally approached it from like what is now first principles perspective. We got lucky. But the other thing is every one of those big companies should have crushed us with a assistant and an associate, like, you know, a couple people they could pay seventy or $80,000 a year to. They just didn't have their eye on the ball. So it was a really kind of interesting experience in terms of how much operating room there is between large banks or excuse me, between large industry and, and that maps directly to, to Coho. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I just, I think it's a funny sort of interesting story. No, I think that was, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a better answer than I was expecting. So that's awesome. Yeah. From there, you guys built that up. You're fortunate to sell it. You had this in-between business, which I really appreciate 
your perspective that it just wasn't interesting. It wasn't meaningful. And who wants to just be peddling trash that's going to the landfill? So I respect that. And you, then you say, let's get back into something big and you come to Coho. Sure. And you touched on your reason behind doing that. Now, having raised some $60 million, what experience from that would you say that CEOs or, or early founders need to know when raising capital? Because one thing that I know very clearly is that your cap structure can make or break your company. And it's like playing chess. You got to be seeing four or five moves ahead of you before sure. you sign that term sheet. What have you taken away from that? What could you share about that experience? So the hedge against all of that stuff, because I've made mistakes, every founder will go through that process and they will make mistakes. The, the hedge against all of that stuff is having people that are super high integrity and having people that are invested in you as a person. And I think that what then happens is when you make a mistake, the magnitude of that mistake is constrained to the fact that these people want to see you do well. They understand that the CEO is an essential part of the business, that it's very difficult to replace, that it's a valuable position, and that they value that relationship with you. And if you have those people around you who are really playing a long-term game in terms of how they think about relationships and integrity and, and the network that they're trying to develop over the 30 or 40 year arc of their career, then your ability to solve the inevitable complexities that come up just becomes much, much easier. So I think that there is something to be said for that. And leaning into that, the tactical push there would be like lean into every investor says they're great and, and everybody is great when times are good. Lean into how they operated in 2008. Lean into how they operated when their portfolio companies were running out of money. Speak to the founders that went under and were in really tough positions and like, because that's the time when the values actually show up, right? Like in this environment, the COVID environment is a time when values show up. So there are sort of ways that you can be risk and understand who walks the walk in terms of values and being high integrity and, and thinking long term about the value of their relationships. It's an interesting point of, in essence, qualitatively de-risking and using that as to hopefully find the kind of relationships that will hang with you for the long term. Yeah, that's how I tend to think about it. I think that the people who are playing short-term games and zero-sum games, even if you are just looking at like how to make the most money, that's still the wrong way to approach a career. And most people are looking at it not nearly as myopically, but like the people who are thinking long-term are entirely self-interested to operate with high integrity and be good people and treat the people around them well. And the reason that I say speak to this rather than like the mechanics of, because there's lots of resources about the mechanics of fundraising. There's lots of resources about the specifics of terms and the mechanics and all those kinds of things. What is maybe a little bit obvious, but also maybe not handled tactically enough is like de-risking the integrity of the people around you because it solves for so much when things inevitably get tough. Hmm. Yeah, appreciate that. Thank you. I'm looking through the questions now because like in that point that you just made, I think I'm going to skip the next question on cap tables and deal terms. I think they're still important, but you do make reference that there are some great resources. One of them I think is probably a go-to and you've, I'm sure you've heard of this is Venture Deals by Brad Feld as an example of a, a resource yeah. for raising capital. Yeah. Now, when raising or when building the relationships, the capital relationships for Coho, how has that been? Who did you go after and how has it become easier and how has it become harder to ensure mm -hmm. that you got the capital to build your company? Yeah, what a good question. So 
I mean, early days, again, when you have very few data points, and again, this comes back to the value of network and deliver, I guess, you know, delivering value. I was fortunate that I had a couple people who were very credible that I'd worked with in sort of a, a consulting capacity and were investors who were willing to de-risk this value proposition with me. And so we kind of came to a place where we agreed that if we got the data that we liked and if the early experiments worked, that they'd invest in, and lead our first round. And that was for our they would put in 150K and then that would kind of backstop. And, you know, I'd say getting a lead is, especially in those early days, is 70% of the actual fundraising ground in terms of the mm. work. And then the rest of that tends to fall. Again, in those early days, it's, it's quite, the signaling matters more. Uh, yeah. So if you have people of high caliber who have a track record, and it shouldn't, but people over-index around, oh, XYZ has invested, therefore it must be good, which is just yeah. not actually true, but there's more signaling. So I, I think that how it's gotten harder is that it is, I would just say it's just more challenging. Like the fund dynamics of VCs are very specific. They have to have the right thesis. They have to have the right market match. They have to have the right timing. And then you have to have the right data set, which, you know, it, the good and bad is that it, it's pretty objective whether you're growing and how you're growing. And and so I think what that takes is a really deep understanding of your business and what the unit economics are and, and the drivers. And, and that's just like work. And it's also the job of a CEO to know those things and to be a true operator. I think how it's gotten easier is we're very, for us specifically, and this is a Canadian comment, for us, you know, we operate in a relatively small market. I like to say it's the perfect size of market because it's big enough that we can build a, a really wonderful business in terms of the, a multi-billion dollar company, we believe, in Canada but small enough that like a lot of the sort of international competitors are going to have a tough time coming here when there's a market 10 times bigger, hundred kilometers away. And so we are fortunate to kind of be, I would say in the startup world, a bigger fish in, in the smaller pond that is Canada, but an infinitely small fish compared to the, the banks. So, yeah. Yeah. I can understand there. I see where you're going there. And when you say unit economics, I think that's something as an example of, you know, it even comes back to your initial pitches of having the statistical detailing of, of what it's going to cost you to get a customer. And not to over-reiterate the point, but you had the emotional story of banks are making too much off of the common person. And here's statistically how we can go and capture them. And now 60 million in into multiple raises, when you're, you have to talk with a degree of unit economics and growth, and you make the point of knowing them you must know them incredibly well. What experience or what things do you follow there? And what do you communicate to your investors now? If I had a strength, I think if you were to like pull my investors, it would be that as an operator. I know the unit economics very well. I know most of the details of our contracts pretty intricately. And, and can, the you ex- can you expand like of, of how you define unit economics? So backing up, the business is investable because it's going to return a profit. But we're a long ways away from being like a a cash flow positive company. So then the next level down from that is like, oh, so how is an individual customer performing as a precursor to this business's ability to drive profit? And then from there, it's a question of, okay, so this is where we're at today. What directionally is where it's going? And if you think about, you know, we kind of have on a like line item breakdown, we have five or six things that drive revenue on a per user basis. And we have five or six things that drive costs on a per user basis. So if this company keeps growing on this trajectory, what levers do they have? How do these evolve? How do they scale? Because ultimately, the most universe, if there is a golden metric in our industry, but I think 
in almost all industries, especially well in a B2C capacity. It's what's the time of payback on a customer. So if you're spending $20 to get a customer, is it taking you three months to recover that cost or three years? Or are you unit economics negative and you're actually never recovering it? That's just such a universal way to tell a story and is the most defensible way to tell a story net of like just overall profit margin, which, which we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. I want to just throw a, a plug in here for a previous episode I did with a gentleman named Charles Plant. The episode is an algorithm for billion dollar growth. And he speaks very much like you do to what are those unit economics. And he's taken and done a tremendous amount of research with the University of Toronto on Canadian startups and what it takes to build that billion dollar company. So whether it's for you, unless if you haven't heard of a Charles Plant or, or any of the listeners, it's an awesome dive into what those metrics have to look like. And what basically the study shows is the algorithm for finding the amount of sales and marketing you have to put in to achieve the outcomes you're after. It's fascinating. Awesome. I will check that out. I have heard that name before. So I will. And the fact I'm also in Toronto. So oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. He's uh, Charles is an outstanding guy. Yeah. Definitely worth the episode. Uh, worth the listen. Very cool. Now, I'm just looking at time here and I want to be respectful of yours and perhaps I'm boring you with my finance talk, but... <laughs> no, I love <laughs> it. I'm, I'm enjoying geeking out on this stuff. Oh, good man. Good man. Cool. Well, you know, let's maybe aim to wrap it up. We'll do it with a few informal questions as we go, but perhaps if you were to look and give advice to any CEO out there, and I know that's such a broad spectrum, but from the positions that you're in or perhaps most recent learning experiences... What kind of advice would you have when it comes to building a company and the capital required to do it? What I would say, and it comes back to kind of the hard things that we've nudged on in this conversation, one of the most tragic things I see is super smart people, super talented people building businesses that are super incremental. And the reason that it's super frustrating or hard to see is because it's so hard to build a business and it's, if not as difficult, possibly easier to build a large businesses which also has a large component of being useful and purposeful and driving a lot of value. Like building another widget for Instagram doesn't move the dial for me at all. Now, if it does move the dial for you personally, that, that's great, but it's so hard to do. So why would you not do that? And there's kind of the specifics or there's a couple of tactical kind of heuristics that I use that are worth thinking about. And the first one is what I call the anonymity heuristic. and The notion is if you could never talk about it, if nobody could ever tell you, nobody could ever know that you're doing it, would you still do it or would you change that relationship to your work? And I used to think that I wanted to climb Mount Everest and then I put it through this heuristic and it's like, climb Mount Everest seems like it would suck. It would be freezing and (laughs) it would be so hard, but I want to talk about me being a guy who's climbed Mount Everest. I want to talk about it at cocktail parties, but that's a very different goal and that's a really important distinction. So I don't actually want to climb Mount Everest. I just want to be a guy who has climbed Mount Everest, which is an important kind of distinction in terms of the orientation. It sounds like, you know, identifying how much of your ego is in it versus how much of your heart. Totally. And I think we're going to see that in this environment, how many people are in it for the ego versus the heart. The second thing that's an important part of this is if you think about leverage, it's like what one thing can you, and I heard this on a, on a podcast a couple months ago and it just stuck with me is what one thing can you do to make everything else either easy or unnecessary? And having a deep intrinsic relationship to the purpose of your company, which by the way is earned, like this notion that you have a eureka light bulb moment, all of a sudden you, you care, it, it is not 
true in my experience, but that what one thing makes everything else either easy or unnecessary is like caring deeply about the outcome that your company is delivering in a real purpose orientated way. Cause it just makes your talent acquisition easier. It makes your investor relations easier. It makes it easier to stay motivated. Like we as humans can push, but when you have a mission that you care about, you are pulled towards it. And that just makes you a more productive, a higher outcome person. So it's a bit of a soapbox and a rant, but I think that I just, I see so many smart people working on things that are incremental and it it just feels really hard for that outcome. I hear you and understand that. And I also, you know, I think that to your last point there of that, it's almost like the why it seems almost cliche, but is, you know, what is that underlying energy that's going to keep pushing you forward as one of the things? So, So, I mean, like you're, you're absolutely right. And it is a cliche. And whenever I hear cliches now, I think, and it's like have, you know, Simon Sinek and why and all that kind of stuff is what would it look like to be in the top 90, 95th percentile of companies who solve for their why or solve for X cliche? Because the, the truth is there's wisdom in cliches, but we don't actually always process them and internalize them and, and manifest them in tactical ways. Mm. And so there's another layer of that, which is like, what is that to be on the top core child decile of, of that kind of spectrum. Hmm. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. I'm going to wrap the podcast up here because I think that it's, it's been really informative and I want to uh, respect your time. I'm on your website right now, coho.ca. A new era of banking is right up on the front page. It's a beautiful site and it sounds like you've got a very compelling business here. How else can the listeners follow your work? Yeah, I, I'm on Twitter at uh, Dan Ebbs. That's D-A-N-E-B-S. Coho is, is all over Twitter and, and Instagram as well. So that's the best way to reach out to us. Thank you so much for having me, Corey. This was, uh, this was super fun. And it's always nice to kind of jam on some of these things. Yeah, yeah, right on. Especially because uh, we did this one off the cuff. So that's great. Thanks so much for your time. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, Please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.